What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Valley, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andy Bailey. We are, however, as we near the very end of our season preview train, pleased to be joined by Adam Spinella, the assistant men's basketball coach at Washington and Jefferson. He also writes for our own NBA math, in addition to B-Ball Breakdown, and as a contributor for Fast Model. He is a very busy guy. He's going to grad school, too. Hopefully he's okay with me divulging that. Um, how are you doing tonight, Adam? I'm doing great, Dan. Uh, it's, it's, again, exciting time to be this close to the regular season start. Uh, a lot of news coming out, whether it's trades, roster decisions being finalized, injury news, and you know, I'm sure we'll we'll cover all that that's pertinent to the Spurs here tonight, but it's just exciting to be talking basketball and not have to wait much longer in order to see what we're talking about come into play. It's great because, as you just said, Spurs, I don't even know if I led with that we were talking about the Spurs, but we're talking about the Spurs, and it's fitting that we waited this long to get it done because we're recording this on a Friday night, and a couple hours before we jump on, we find out that Kawhi Leonard will not be available for their season opener because of his quad injury. And uh, that kind of, I, I don't know what the word would be, but like that, this is kind of par for their offseason course. It's just been weird for them. They gave Pal Gasol all that money after he opted out, which you can only think had to do with he was doing them a solid so they could try and get FaceTime with big names that they ended up not going after. They paid Rudy Gay. The mid-level exception is fine, but he's over 30, coming off an Achilles injury. They're kind of thin up front all of a sudden. You think they're going to play some small ball because Gay is there, but what happens if he's not healthy? And most definitely what happens uh, if Kawhi Leonard isn't healthy for a little bit at the beginning of the preseason? Do you turn to Davis Bertans a lot more? Is Kyle Anderson all of a sudden a big part of this team? So, especially now that we've gotten this news about Kawhi Leonard and we know that Tony Parker is not going to be ready. What is just your, what was just your general impression of this Spurs off season? You know, general impression is, is one of, I'm a little bit more pessimistic than I am optimistic about it. And I think there's really, there's two paths you can take with this, right? The, the Spurs have definitely tried to reshape their roster and retool kind of the the way that they're uh, attacking Golden State because Golden State's the enemy right now. Mm-hmm. And in the past they've tried to do the stick with their two big men and try to exploit the differences in the matchups with Golden State. Whereas now this summer it kind of feels like they're they're conforming to the Warriors and trying to play smaller with more length on the wings and and the ability to switch matchups at the forward spots and and stretch the floor a little bit more. Uh, There's something to me, maybe it's because I am a basketball coach, and I I think of culture on a team as being so sacred, but there's something that's very upsetting about seeing San Antonio try to conform to somebody else to some degree. That there's always been this magic and this mystical aura about what Greg Popovich does with his team, and now to see that they're essentially changing the way that they do things a little bit in order to match up with somebody else, it, it, it's a very uncomfortable feeling for a lot of Spurs fans or those who study the Spurs closely to be in. Yeah, it is really weird. And I, you wrote about this in depth is that they're earlier in the, over the summer, they're just adjusting to small ball mania, it seems. And it's not like we don't necessarily, they haven't come out and said it, I don't think. To date, but you just look at their roster makeup and you see it. I I mean, Pau Gasol and Joffrey Lavernier are basically the only centers on this roster, which leads you to believe that LaMarcus Aldridge will be playing some more five. And we know that he doesn't like to play five, but we also know now that 
he was open with Greg Popovich uh, about how unhappy he was the first two years in San Antonio. So maybe you're able to try and find common ground there. We also know that he hinted at maybe shooting more threes. So the signs kind of point to their going smaller. At the same time, they're not even coming close to rivaling the Warriors because they don't have, you know, Rudy Gay is not all of a sudden going to be this switchy wing unless you think Kyle Anderson is all of a sudden going to be this like Joe Ingles type player uh, or if you're expecting to get more than anticipated out of rookie Derek White or you think DeJounte Murray is just going to be spectacular. It's very, they're in this weird limbo to where it almost doesn't feel as if we can do what we've done for the past you know, five, six, seven years and say, well, they're the Spurs, so they're just going to churn out uh, 55, 60 wins, and, and that'll be that. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you look at a team that makes all these changes to their roster, and the last thing that I worry about with anything with Popovich is the offense. The, the way that they're going to play is they're still going to move the ball and be one of the best passing teams in the NBA. They're going to shoot a high percentage from three, and they're not going to take bad looks. They're going to run the right stuff on offense. That's not really – a concern when it comes to this it is like you said the defense because Rudy Gay has not had a considerably high ceiling there and as a veteran it, it you always think that they're on the the downward slope once you hit 30 years old in terms of defensive output uh who's who's their best rim protector Dan like who who's the guy <laughs> that, that does the best job protecting the rim for the Spurs it might be I, I it might be Lamarcus Aldridge at this point. I mean, it, like because they're rim protectors. Like Pau Gasol is a pretty good rim protector for them because they find these ways, or they have to date, of being able to to make these guys basically stationary guys. Like they're not going to have to jump out on the perimeter and and try and muck up all these different pick and rolls or or, or you know on these closeouts because the Spurs is wing defenders Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard. They're so suffocating and on point when you're defending on ball, that there there doesn't need to be a ton of help there. I, I What happens if Kawhi Leonard is out for 10 games, though? Like, and, and I just don't, yeah. I mean, what is Rudy Gay going to do for you at the four? Now, all of a sudden, yeah, you know what? He's a good fit offensively still at the four, most definitely. What happens on defense now, though, where he's always been on his at his best, maybe slightly above average, maybe a replacement level player or something like that there? If he's not going to be good defensively, now all of a sudden you have these centers making these rotations or having a journey a little bit further away from the restricted area, in which case I have no idea who their best rim protector would be. Yeah. I, who would you I, have right now? I, I think it's probably Gasol just because he, he – to me he's a little more crafty than Aldridge. Um, but, I mean, it's a, it's a toss-up. And, and either way, it's not good. Right? <laughs> that's, that's really what we're – what we're debating here is is you know is is my crap better than yours uh i don't i don't think the spurs are going to be a great defensive team on the interior that they have been in the past they've been one of the top defensive units if not the top defensive team for close to a decade and it's really hard for me to see a team that at some point is going to trot out an older tony parker an older Pau gasol we don't know what shape Kawhi Leonard is in right now. Granted, it's a long season, but they also have LaMarcus Aldridge, who is this mismatched. He's not great defending at the five. He's not going to be good defending at the four. There's just a lot of questions defensively for these guys. And and Pop is going to do his part to create the schemes that work best for them. They'll ice or downside ball screens, which means – they're trying to force the ball handler away from using the screen and keep him pinned on the sideline. And then they'll probably play a very drop-back type of coverage on middle ball screens, which keep their big guys like Gasol and Aldridge away from the perimeter and dare their opposing ball handlers to come off these screens and shoot it in the mid-range or try to attack them and, and finish over length. Uh, I think that the negative of that by trying to protect those big guys is that you let your guards kind of ping around over screens, you know, possession after possession after possession, and it wears down on you. Guys like Patty Mills or Danny Green or DeJounte Murray are going to have a really tough time defending all of the ball screens that they're going to try to put them in as they attack guys like Gasol and Aldridge. And you know, and you talk about what they're going to do in these adjustments they're going to make, and what gives me, 
this is probably blind hope in them because the personnel is so different. And again, the front court rotation is so wonky, but they they just know how to game the regular season system. Like they're yeah. just gonna they're gonna attack you defensively if you're even like just not a half step on point on offense, and then they're gonna grind you down at the other end on their own offense and milk the clock and make you defend for a full twenty two to twenty four seconds and that might help them survive with you know we'll say without Kawhi Leonard because they outscored opponents during the regular season 6.6 points per 100 possessions when he wasn't on the floor again it's a little bit different now but even if you know he comes back you don't have Parker you don't know when you're gonna have Parker you have you don't really know what to expect from the point guard position anymore uh because you figure they're gonna lean on Dejounte. excuse me you figure they're gonna leave on Dejounte Murray and Patty Mills, it's just, there's so many more question marks, but because they're so schooled in the regular season art form of how to get the most out of whoever's on the floor just by being consistent and and knowing what they want to do and how they're going to do it, I think they won't have a problem getting to 50 wins, even if, and it's it might not even be an if, even though this regular season is probably going to be more experimental than most have been in the past, recent oh, past. Ab- Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I say at the, at the top of this, you know, I'm a little pessimistic about the Spurs and their summer right now, like before the Spurs faithful come at me with their, their torch and pitchforks, like pessimistic means like we're still going to roll through the regular season and win 50 plus games. It just, it's about what they're trying to do in the postseason for how they match up against Golden State, Houston and Oklahoma City, the other big three teams out West. I mean, they don't have a rim protector that's going to deter all of the shots at the rim that would come against Houston because we know that's what they're all about. And I think Russell Westbrook dominates pretty much anybody unless they stick Kawhi Leonard on him. And then who guards Paul George? I mean, Danny Green, okay. Now where are you hiding guys like Parker and Aldridge? You know, there's just there's too many scorers on the court for teams like that. And then they have nobody to guard for – for Oklahoma City either. So there's just a lot of questions defensively that that make me scratch my head and say, you know, did they push the right buttons this summer to really exploit their strengths and do so enough to hide their weaknesses? Uh, and th- the answer is no, right? Like it's just, it's no, unless we can say unless, 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 like do they hit, like is Murray all of a sudden just really good? You know, that helps them. He has that length. Um, he has that little pop to him where maybe he's someone you – well, no, he's not maybe, but, like, he could be that player that you're going to put on the explosive point guard so that it's not Danny Green as he's getting up there in age, so that it's not Kawhi Leonard, particularly when Kawhi Leonard isn't even available for you. And if you hit on him, that changes some things. If Rudy Gay's healthy, then yeah, yeah. I- then you're a little bit better suited at the floor. It's just there are so many maybes, and I, I guess what I'm having trouble as we run around circles just grappling with, like – do you think that there are enough if if enough of these question marks are answered in the affirmative? You know, let's say Patty Mills and Javante Murray, like they they're fine leading an offense. And even if Kawhi Leonard comes back, he's gonna make that I could see him making that Kevin Durant leap as a playmaker that he did in Oklahoma City, where he all of a sudden averaged five assists per game. Um is Kyle Anderson gonna do anything for you defensively and kind of uh, use anticipation instead of a lack of, since he has a lack of speed like Joe Ingles does, I'll keep coming back to, he's fantastic at that. Do you think there are enough question marks to where if those are answered in the affirmative that the Spurs could be like almost as good, if if not as good as last year, or have now they reached the point where even if everything or close to everything breaks right, like they're just not suited to stack up to these premier teams in the Western Conference? It's yeah, it's so tough to say that though because you take a look at game one of the Spurs Warriors series oh, when God. Kawhi was like, and you go back to the the last regular season games that they had played. San Antonio was a legitimate challenger to Golden State last year. It's like it feels weird trying to write them off or say that there's something not right about the way that they're that they're going about this right now, but. They've changed a lot this summer with their identity. And again, with that, I think will come will come growing pains. We will see. Time time is the only thing that can tell if the buttons that they're pressing in their front office and in their coaching staff are the right ones to maximize this roster even more. But at the end of the day, to me, it, it really does come down to LaMarcus Aldridge, who I kind of call the the new Kevin Love, so to speak. Uh, when when Love went to Cleveland right away and they were playing Golden State, it was kind of, well, he can't play the five and he can't defend anybody when he's at the four. And 
there's just, you know, it, it changes things to, to not have a guy that really finds a home on defense. And can you really beat a team that is so good, like Golden State, while you're working hard to find a place to hide somebody? It's interesting because I was going to segue to LaMarcus Aldridge, who he was important just because he was so bad in the Western Conference Finals without Kawhi Leonard that he was instantly, like, he needed to be really good for for this team to still be really good. And now with this quad injury for Leonard, uh, if it does make him his opening night, if not more, he's all of a sudden the featured weapon. And we were talking about rim protection before, and I brought this sheet up because I had it uh, for something I was doing. I ranked the top 100 NBA players uh, for Bleacher Report, which was just mm-hmm. uh, like that blue that um, my head still hurts from that as I stutter. Um, <laughs> but 125 players defended at least 200 attempts at the rim. LaMarcus Aldridge ranked fifth in points allowed per shot. So it's not, we're not even saying like this is straight field, like this is points allowed per shot. And he was just behind Draymond Green, Rudy Gobert, Roy Hibbert, and Joel Embiid. His volume wasn't um, up there with Rudy Gobert, but it was around like, you know, Giannis Attentacumpo level, Dwayne Dedman level. So that's not bad, and that's that's the appeal of the Spurs system for him on defense is that you can still, if they're going to play him at center and he's going to be open to it, he might be able to survive there if you're going to get enough activity on the perimeter with and without Leonard, too. But offensively, can he still be, and I lean towards yes, but can he still be that anchor? And that might be the, the more important question because I feel like the Spurs are just always going to figure it out defensively they you know they by default they're going to limit your number of possessions because they're so good at dictating pace no matter who is on the court but last season when Kawhi Leonard uh when Kawhi Leonard was on the bench like the Spurs were demonstrative minus with with LaMarcus Aldridge as the lead guy in those situations like it wasn't even it wasn't even kind of close um the exact number Per NBA Wowie, uh, they were scoring 99.7 points per 100 possession, which would have been worse than the Sixers' league low mark. Like, that's a that's a problem because I don't think you look at this roster and say that it is appreciably better or even diversified enough that Aldridge could build upon that unless he all of a sudden is... Is he more comfortable in the Spurs system, do you think, this year? Do you think that him firing more threes would help? Are they going to maybe just run some more pick and pops for him? Like, how do you go about placating this guy's ego, which is among the most complex egos, I would say, in basketball, given what happened when he left Portland? I mean, to be honest, I don't think Popovich really gives a shit about ego. He just He just just coaches and and takes a guy, and if you don't buy in, you're— you're probably going to be out of there or uh, you're, you're not going to be utilized in the way that you'd like to. So he'll he'll get Aldridge to buy in a little bit. From what I've seen so far this, this preseason and in looking at the sets and things that they ran last year, they play a lot through Pau Gasol at the elbows mm-hmm. or in the low post that they run similar type of triangle actions where they clear out one side and put the ball in Gasol's hands or they put the ball in his hands about 18 feet away, just beneath the top of the key, and they have cutters swirling all around him. Aldridge can space the floor to the corners for three. I, I don't doubt that too much. I think he'll be effective in that role and and be able to be a, a secondary type of guy. But again, you're taking a guy who's such a good individual one-on-one scorer and relegating him to that role, he's not going to be so happy about it. Yet, all the metrics say, all these tough turnaround twos that Aldridge lives on, and the amount that it sucks the energy out of the ball and the rest of the team by just eating possessions and and not sharing the ball around the perimeter, it's detrimental to the Spurs as a whole. So while Aldridge may not conform and buy in, I think there's still a role for him somewhere. They'll find occasional post-ups for him. Uh, he can score a little bit off of the pick and roll and short rolls, but at the end of the day, it's it's been really fascinating to watch Pau Gasol and out touch him and be more of a facilitator in this offense. Is so what if we were to remove ego from the equation? What would be Lamarcus's Aldridge ideal role and function on this team? Like, what do the Spurs do? To specifically just, just to maximize him at this point? What do they try and pigeonhole him into? I think right now the Spurs are, are in flux a little bit because they don't have Tony Parker. 
They're changing parts quite a bit around the perimeter. Uh, the way Popovich can play and design an offense, he doesn't need one point guard. I mean, you watch a lot of their motion stuff. The ball moves seamlessly through the perimeter. Everybody gets a touch. So point guard and point guard dominant ball screen type of play isn't something that the Spurs are necessarily you know, based upon. And I think the best way to utilize Aldridge would be as an off-ball screener where he's able to slip up to the basket or force teams by being a good screener to to switch. And then he gets mismatches that Popovich and the rest of the team don't feel quite as queasy about trying to exploit and pound the ball inside for one-on-one play. If he becomes a really good screener, and I know that's like the worst thing that people like to hear because they're looking for flashy like let's use him in this regard or put him at the high post or you know these complicated like no if he becomes a good screener within the way that they play he's going to get a lot more open looks that don't require him to hold the ball for three or four seconds of possession I think that's the best way to utilize a guy like him and it is and I was looking this up just as you started talking about his screening over the past two years since he came to San Antonio he's been a role man on about 20 percent of his offensive possessions and he's never even shot like as a pick and roll diver better than 46.1%, which is absolutely atrocious for people that don't like, he doesn't turn the ball over a bunch, but for that volume, if you're going to get more than three of those possessions a game between three and four of those things, that's bad. Like we're talking bottom third of the league, like in, in efficiency percentile and the Spurs, while they're not a three point happy team, like they're very efficient about how they go about creating space and to I don't understand how you I, I don't I don't understand these numbers for a player of his caliber who's never I guess he's never been exceptional around the rim but like I you could plug I feel most people into this role and they're gonna shoot 50 plus percent on those looks like Dwayne Dedman was able to shoot 63 percent out of the pick and roll for them last year it's just I mean Quine Leonard himself in his limited time as a roller shot 50 percent and he's a wing David Lee shot 62 percent so, but there's something, you know, Pau Gasol and the Mark Sosa, they don't have that explosive. Pau Gasol struggled there for them as well. And a lot of these, I guess it's, those guys aren't diving either. And that's the problem is they're, they're rolling out for a lot of pick and pops where Dwayne Dedman is going to burst toward the basket. But I could see, isn't that supposed to be Aldridge's specialty too? Like, I feel like I'm going back and forth with my own question here, but that is his ideal role. But is he even like, he needs to get regain something that he's clearly lost whether it was interest or or touch so that he can still be like the the really good pick and pop option if he's not going to be that diver yeah i rewind it even a step further from that not just what you do with the ball after you roll or where you roll to but how you set the screen and i watched the spurs last spring and he just he looks like he's not concerned about that he's not concerned about setting a, a good hard solid screen to get his teammate open and in a Popovich system, those are the little things that cause the rift. So for me, I'm not even worried about where is he popping to, where is he rolling to. It's the type of screens that he sets on those ball screens. And then there's off-ball screens, right? Those screens where, let's say, Tony Parker's dribbling it on the wing and Kawhi is cutting you know, through the lane and, and trying to come out the opposite wing. What is Aldridge doing to set those screens and then try to – you know, inside pivot and seal, get a, a smaller defender on his backside and flash towards the ball. There are quick finishes and plays that you can get when you set screens for other guys that don't require you to, to post up, hold the ball, and jack up those crazy, you know, turnaround fadeaways that he's patented you know, over the last few years. There's ways that he can score and be more efficient without dominating the ball. And I think that's what the Spurs system is all about, and that's what they need out of him if they're going to be able to get the most out of a group that really doesn't have many go-to scorers. And it's probably more difficult than ever now to strike that balance if Kawhi Leonard misses any time. Like, we're talking a few games because all of a sudden Aldridge can't just be that off-ball worker. You're going to need him to kind of pound it a little bit more. That's right. That's right. And and he and Kawhi, you know, they work pretty well together just because they're both— Kawhi is just so, so good. They're— virtually no flaws in his game anymore and and he he makes everyone around him better but like you said when you don't have Kawhi on the floor 
Is it going to become the LaMarcus Aldridge show, which is very counterintuitive to everything in that organization? Or is he going to find a way to be a go-to scorer without doing it in the way that he's always done it through his career in Portland? And I don't, I, it seems, I would hope that there will be some middle ground just because I don't know if you read the Michael Wright piece on ESPN.com, but Aldridge just straight out said he talked to Popovich about all this and Pop and him are just now on the same page. And Pop had even said like, well, you know, some of his concerns were valid. So maybe it's just, maybe that helps. Like as stupid as it sounds, like maybe that, maybe that conversation behind the scenes uh, incites something for both, you know, coach and player. Yeah, we we can be we can be hopeful in that regard. I mean, the the post up is not dead. It's not something that every team needs to avoid, right? But it's on a team that's built on flow of your offense and ball movement and player movement. Throwing the ball inside and just back down, back down, back down kills that flow a little bit. And I think right now the talent gap between the Spurs and a lot of the top teams in the NBA is growing Mm -hmm. and what's always been the differential for them that elevates that difference is their coaching their system and their culture and when you have to change that or or tweak it a little bit in order to make one of your guys happier the end result is what really suffers now and another kind of you move away from down low and the lamarcus aldridge existential or identity crisis or whatever the heck is happening over there the point guard situation is fascinating because people, you know, they, they some of them have been talking like, oh, they're, they're out like until Tony Parker comes back. You have to like rely on Murray and Patty Mills. Even after Tony Parker comes back, like this isn't like a good situation. He can still, if he's healthy, he'll get into the lane. And I think he's shown he can go through these spurts where if you put him in the corner, he'll drill some catch and shoot threebies. But like this, this point guard situation, regardless of how healthy Tony Parker is or when he comes back it's just in flux and I'm curious what you think the Spurs might lean toward more like my own gut tells me that they'll try and cut Murray loose a little bit more so that Patty Mills's role doesn't have to change Um, but but I honestly don't know because we're talking about a team that is supposed to be definitely among the West top four and that's not a squad that would typically turn to a sophomore to run its offense and then cover some really tough defensive assignments. Well, first of all, Dan, I am I'm stealing the phrase three B from you. I don't I've never heard that before. You just threw that out there. Hey, I love that. A, hey. a, a open free three pointer, a three B. I'm using that. Yeah, I mean I hey, I dropped some good ones. If you ever need to really hurt your eyes, you can start reading me more and I'll drop some good made up words every once in a while. That's that is fantastic. Three B. Um but getting back to your, your question. Yeah, there I'm looking at the Spurs roster and kind of depth charts right now. I tend to break players down, not in the the typical point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center type of mold, but there are guards, wings, forwards, and posts and mm-hmm. four positions. And I think the Spurs really have seven guards. Okay. Being Parker, Mills, Murray, uh, rookie Derek White, and then Ginobili, Paul, and Forbes. I think of all seven of those guys as guards. Oh, I forgot about I'm even I just forgot about Ginobili and he's like he's fantastic when he is like he's still so fun to watch. I don't know how effective he'll be, but I, I can't believe I actually forgot about Manu Ginobili, so I would like to I would yeah. like to shame myself. <laughs> he's great for seventeen minutes a game for sixty five games in the regular season. I mean it, it's it's one of those things where again the Spurs will just kinda ho hum experiment with things during the regular season. And then, oh yeah, there's Manu, and he can still ball. Like every April, it's it's the same story. Um, but it's October now, so we can forget about it. <laughs> the the value in Murray, in my mind, comes from his ability, based on his length, to guard up a little bit. That he's really the key to this entire backcourt rotation for them. Because even when Parker returns, they're gonna have guys like Parker, Mills, and Ginobili that they're going to want to play minutes. And we've seen it before. Like Tony Parker and Patty Mills cannot guard up a position. They just can't. They're smaller guards, and they really will struggle with the more physical wings in the league. That's where Murray comes in. Uh, They can go smaller and put Kawhi at the four and have pretty good spacing around with 
you know, Danny Green, DeJounte, and Mills or Parker. And that's probably going to be their most potent lineup because, like you said, it's a lot to ask of a sophomore to run the show. But with San Antonio's scheme, they're not ball dominant. A point guard isn't the guy that plays with the ball in his hands a lot. I think Gasol and Kawhi Leonard are their two primary playmakers right now. Even when Tony Parker returns, it's it's still going to be those two guys. And that fits with Patty Mills when he's on the floor. He's best as a a knockdown three-point shooter and a re-penetration specialist. Somebody else kicks the ball out to him. He'll attack a poor closeout and make the right play from there. So uh, Murray is a sophomore. His biggest thing is going to be on defense. He's going to have to step up to those defensive matchups and find somebody to to mark in an impactful way that doesn't leave Kawhi Leonard, you know, battered and bruised after an 82 game season. Yeah, and you know what? One of the things that I guess could be used as comfort is that if they're and if they're able to kind of follow the model that you lay out and like that's how it's like this point guard by committee almost but you you playmaker by committee like whatever you want to call it they, if they can find a way to, sh- to shoot those gaps and especially once Kawhi Leonard comes back I'd think that becomes exponentially easier the, like they still just find a way to score points like last year they scored 113 points per 100 possessions which would have been about second in the league when Patty Mills played without Kwai, Manu, and Tony Parker. And the yep. defense was fine during that time because the Spurs' defense is always fine. And that's like, maybe there are more options than we give them credit for. And I mean, Manu Ginobili, you know, he's good for uh, kind of initiating the offense a ton. And that's, you don't play him more necessarily if Leonard is injured. But they're, they just have, I guess they have a lot of ways that maybe we're underestimating to some extent of bridging some of these certain gaps, like the front court problems and the switchability there, uh, that might be bigger than any issue they have on the perimeter. And that includes however long Kawhi Leonard is out. Yeah. Uh, here's a challenge to any, any listeners or, or you yourself, Dan, is to, to go, if you have NBA league pass, they have these condensed games where you can watch the you know the highlights, right. the scoring plays, the recaps of, of games that are played. Go watch some of the Spurs against I don't know run of the mill NBA team, not some of the elite teams, but you know the the average to below average teams. Like watch theirs against Orlando from the other night. And if you watch that and you're looking for the way that they pass the ball and the amount of times the ball hits the floor on a scoring possession. It's going to be really amazing to watch. Like they do a great job across the board of sharing the ball and moving it and letting the ball be the onus on deciding where the shot comes from, not dribble penetration, not ball screens, not pounding the crap out of it on the floor for eight seconds of possession. It's unbelievable to watch. It's so much fun. It's, it's what us basketball purists really love to, to see. And I don't think that changes based on their personnel too much. I think that's systemic now for guys when they come to the Spurs. They know what they're getting themselves into, and the Spurs only get guys that are going to be great passers in that regard. Uh, so when we talk about all these different guards and kind of point guard roulette and you know which big man will they slot into for their wonky defensive rotations and alignments out of that, Again, to me, I don't worry about the offense at all. And it's it's inverse from years past with the Spurs, who have always been so good on defense and have continued to tinker with things and, and evolve on offense. Now the inverse is true. They have tinkered enough with the offense and evolved through time that they're going to be golden no matter what. But they have to solve the problem of defending mobile fours and protecting the rim against the great slashers and driving guards out west. And it's it's really tough for them to do in a one-stop shop, if you will, that they can't you can't find one rotation that accomplishes both things for the Spurs. No, you can't. And I don't know I don't necess- I don't even know how they address it, like what what you favor more given their roster makeup because the when you look at the splits of when Kawhi Leonard and LaMarcus Aldridge played without any bigs on the court, like they're not, they're not necessarily great. Like the, the, it was, first of all, the Spurs really went to it because they, I feel like they don't trust it. They don't want to play Kawhi Leonard at the four. And I guess 
one of the major differences now is you don't have to play Kawhi Leonard at the four with Rudy Gay there, and you have Bertans. But who do you look to on this roster as, you know, you say they don't have the entire package solution, but who do you think is going to play the biggest role if the Spurs are able to even uh, address this in, uh, you, you know, like the majority somehow, if they're able to do better, like defending these mobile fours or, or just make the small ball model work? Like who is the player that you're, you know, we know Leonard's going to stay three and Aldridge is at the five. Who are you looking to like that might surprise us at the four? Is it still Rudy Gay? Is it Bertans? Are we counting on Kyle Anderson to turn into something finally? It, it's probably Rudy Gay. Um you know, he is perhaps he's been so overrated at, because of his scoring and ability early in his career. He was so overrated that he became underrated because people have written him off for so long. He's still a really good player, a really, really good player. And the Spurs getting him for the, the mid-level was a, a steal and a bargain this year. He's going to make plays and make them better by being there. Because whose spot is he? He's taken David Lee, his spot in the rotation. Like that's that's an upgrade for the Spurs by far. Um, I I think he's a little bit better defensively than a lot of times we give him credit for, at least because he's he's a decent rebounder, mm-hmm. and a lot of the times if if you can pressure elsewhere and you know Kawhi is going to do a good job on defense, Danny Green is still a pretty solid defender. You know Murray has length. Patty Mills is feisty. If you can force shots from the perimeter, I don't worry about downsizing and the effect that that might have on your rebounding. It's, again, the the pick-and-roll stuff that you have to worry about with whoever their five is. Uh, I think they've solved the issue of the four, but they haven't solved the issue of the five. And when you solve who you put at the four and you downsize a little bit, you're now putting a huge target on the guy who's the five to be your primary ball screen defender because there is nothing behind him to help protect the rim, right? Mm -hmm. If you elevate Pau Gasol by making him defend a ball screen and he comes out of the paint, who is there that can protect the rim? It's not Gay, it's not Leonard, it's not Green, it's not whoever the point guard is. You know, you are doing a much better job of opening up the rim and... To me, that's where their scheme is going to have to be such that keeps Gasol or Aldridge closer to the rim. And they, again, let their guards ping around on top of those high ball screens and side ball screens day in and day out, night in, night out. And it's going to be really, really tiring for their backcourt. Do you think they could have been, and I know everyone thought, including myself, that they might have gotten into the Chris Paul sweepstakes, but his situation never even got that far they still could have been more aggressive in how they approached it do you think and the Pau Gasol's deal makes me think this like where you gave him two years of all that money and then you have the it's kind of a substantial guarantee in year three I think it's a 6.7 million of of his salaries um guaranteed and like to just wave him like that's a 6.7 million dollar cap hit it's not the full mid-level exception money but that's a lot if you get rid of him I'm wondering if I don't want to use the phrase that they were just kicking the can down the road because they knew that LaMarcus Aldridge maybe is going to opt in next summer because of the the market crunch. And now they're kind of looking at, we're not even talking about 2018, but maybe the 2019 summer as the actual reset. Uh, Or maybe they're viewing this somehow as a one-year placeholder because LaMarcus can still um, opt out. I'm just, I'm curious because we know like you've talked about these issues and these are issues. It wasn't even this season. Like we saw it against the Oklahoma city thunder the year before they just looked outmatched against these smaller, quicker lineups. And it just seems that they could have put their foot down to try and address this solution a little bit more. And they kind of didn't, they like accepted uh, like the bare minimum or, or were cool with just treading water or just trying to, it almost feels like they just want to see these next two years through with, you know, until they know, I guess, Aldridge is gone. And I've tried to wrap my head around that for the entire summer and have yet to kind of come up with a definitive take. I, jeez, yeah, I don't know if I could either. It's a, it's a lot. Uh, the cap situation for the Spurs is, is kind of murky. And I wrote about this in the piece for NBA Math at the beginning of the summer. You know, there's a lot of talk about who is it that they're going to target next summer. Do they have enough cash to, you know, go after the Golden Goose and LeBron or 
any of these other guys that can help move things forward. It, it really all depends on the guys that they, you know, that we're talking about that are huge question marks. It's LaMarcus Aldridge. It's Tony Parker and his health. It's Rudy Gay to some degree because he has a player option. Like these are the guys that are going to determine how much they have because Aldridge and Gay, player options. And I can't remember who was the guest on the pod. Zach Lowe did a podcast last last week and was talking about kind of the, the residual effects of, okay, maybe the Spurs don't want Aldridge, but wouldn't you rather have Aldridge and try to flip his asset or at least have him than to just let him walk away in free agency? Like it's more valuable to have a guy who's slightly overpaid and might not be the ideal fit than it is to have nobody. And that that's something I really struggle with right now because you know you could say okay well what if Aldridge leaves uh, the Spurs aren't in a better position because sure they can go out and they can sign guys but the money that it takes to sign a new free agent as, with bird rights and incentives is really costly in comparison to all those things so we can be you know counting down the days until Tony Parker retires and Gasol retires and. Marcus Aldridge opts out and say, okay, great, we got a fresh slate. It's still really expensive to go out there and swing for the fences for top-level talent to surround Kawhi Leonard. Doing it via trade is the best way to do it. And Aldridge's trade value, unfortunately, is pretty low. We found that out in June when the Spurs were shopping him before the draft. Yeah, I mean, maybe if he opts in and he's on an expiring contract and there's a team looking to create cap space or something and wants that deal, that's when he becomes a trade asset, would be next uh, would be next season. I honestly don't know what he's going to do with his contract because it's such a murky situation. I think Zach Lowe even recently talked about that in an article. And, uh, you know, you talk about how difficult it is to kind of rebuild through free agency right now. You're just a, a million percent right because the, the Spurs' quickest path to max cap space or the most efficient one would be they need Danny Green, um, LaMarcus Aldridge, and to opt out and then they can get rid of Kyle Anderson and then all of a sudden you're you know you can you have a bunch of qualifying offers and non-guaranteed deals you work with and that's your path to 35 plus million dollars in room but Danny Green means something to you like that's a player if he opts out you don't just renounce his cap hold he's a very important defender he's still a pretty good shooter and once you keep his cap hold in there or if you assume that he even opts in and that's 10 million right there they needed Gay to opt out too excuse me that was the one I missed like you're one depending on all these guys to opt out and it's not a given and if you want to keep Danny Green getting to max cap spaces it's it's almost impossible you would have to gut like everything around Kawhi Leonard Danny Green and Pau Gasol that's right it, it, a lot of people when they look at salary cap information i don't think that they they look at it correctly they see you know max cap space if you go on any of any of these numbers you know b-ball insiders spot track whatever it is there are a lot of great websites out there, but I don't think that they have metrics that people know how to use mm-hmm. when it comes to predicting cap space. So when I take a look at San Antonio's roster, with all of the guys that they have as of now that would be under contract for next year's 2018-2019 season, the maximum amount of cap space that they could have is $43.8 million, roughly, which you, you hear that number and you say, great. We can go out there and get, you know, a LeBron James and chase him and throw a max contract out there. But then you have to think about how much of that is team controlled, right? How many of the decisions to get that cap space are ones that the Spurs as an organization can make? How many of them are not player options, essentially? Right. And it's, if it's not a lot. It, <laughs> no. If every single guy were to opt in, they have less than a million dollars. Right, I, they have less than a million dollars under the cap, and they have seven. They have eleven guys under contract. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and but at, at at the same time, it almost was at least this off season. It was there. I don't know what that Palcasol deal is. It puzzles the hell out of me. Like I, I again, yeah. um, but you gave Rudy Gay the player option. Like you didn't have to do that. Like if you weren't. I guess committed to just seeing what you have now through for the next two years because like that that is a weird decision as well like to give him the power to if you were hell bent on having cap space you may you would have like drawn a hard line there and if it meant 
missing out on Rudy Gay because you didn't have more money to spend. Well, okay, you missed out on a 30-year-old Rudy Gay who's coming off an Achilles injury. Yeah, and and people talk about, well, what the it'll be free agency next year, free agency, free agency. Like I think all I really do think Aldridge is going to opt in. I I really do. And if he if he doesn't, again, the Spurs are going to struggle just to let him go for nothing. Yeah. Um, unless they get like LeBron James or a legitimate difference maker, like a legitimate top guy. They're going to struggle letting Aldridge go for that. You know, the again, the Pau Gasol deal is mind blowing because you take that sixteen point eight million dollars next year off the books, like they the party changes. That they can go after some guys. But it's it's I don't know, those moves this summer, the the gay player option, like yeah, I don't know if it necessarily had to be a player option, but I did you know, I, I think having gay is, is a good thing for them. But there's just there's too many guys on this roster right now that I look at and I see it's going to be hard to move them if you have to move them and create something. And where else is is the improvement going to come from? Because free agency is going to be tough. All you have really are those mid level exceptions. And and again, it's it comes back to it makes you think. And I, I tend to lean towards you. I I almost feel like this. Maybe Lamarcus Aldridge still opts out. Maybe, but this is probably the Spurs operating under the assumption that they're not going to lose Lamarcus Aldridge, even if he opts out. Then maybe because they know he's not getting. I think we can agree he's not get. I would be shocked if he got twenty two point three million dollars a year on the open market next year, which is what no. he would be owed. So if you're going to resign him at a lower number, maybe that deal becomes easier to move. Maybe it's more palatable down the line. But they're uh, the Spurs are a smart, a smart organization, and they don't divulge much. But their moves are typically almost easy to read and this this summer was was just not and a lot of it I, it comes back to the cap like i mean not the cap but like just the decisions there again the, the gay player option it makes you it makes us all of a sudden say well then what what are they doing like they gave pagas all this extra year they must they have to have a hunch that like it's not as easy to pivot into something different anytime soon because you don't give out in my opinion that player option to gay and you definitely i don't care if it got you in a position to possibly maybe, if you're lucky, get in a room with Chris Paul, you don't give a three-year, $48 million deal to Pau Gasol. Even if you want to subtract $10 million off the top of that, where it's essentially this two-year, like like $40 million, or two-year, $38 million, two-year, $39 million, you don't do that unless you don't think that it's going to be easier to pivot out of what you're doing now or whether something different will be readily accessible if you were to pivot out of it. And even on the other end of the spectrum, the Spurs have spent their last two draft first round draft picks on point guards. They just re-signed Patty Mills. He's going to make twelve and a half million next year. He's signed for what is it like forty eight million over the next four years. And then Tony Parker's a free agent next year. What what happens if Tony Parker doesn't want to retire and wants to keep playing? Are you really going to throw eight or nine million dollars a year at him if that's what he's what he's asking for and then lock you know four roster spots and 24 million dollars up in point guards when you already have all of this other fat around them with with Aldridge and Gasol and I mean it's just it's so many variables right now that it's a unique position because we haven't you're exactly right the, the Spurs are usually pretty predictable we haven't seen them be in a situation where kind of the the cards are are on the table and somebody else is holding the next card to play and right now i think that the other guys on their roster with all those player options hold that deck the rest of the cards in their hand i think we can agree and i think it might be this has been like for a spurs podcast what we would be typically used to it's been heavy like i don't know if you feel that <laughs> weight it's been heavy because of all the unknowns if like if we're just talking objectively, like we're talking, LeBron wants to win a title. LeBron wants to play great, and you know wants to play great well into his thirties, probably closer to forty. Like the Spurs are just a match with the way they preserve players. That and that's like, and perhaps that's actually what they were thinking about. Whereas we're not doubling down on this free agency thing, um, but we know LeBron's going to be out there, and if he gives an inkling that he wants to come, like you know they don't have none of these deals. Maybe with the exception of Gasol, but I think because that third year is non-guaranteed, you could sweeten it with something. If LeBron came and said, "Hey, I, I want to come to San Antonio, but I'm not taking less than the max," like the Spurs still have a path to get there. It's it's gutturial, of course, but there's still that path, and maybe that's just 
what they said. Like, we're going to figure this out. And maybe they haven't figured anything out. They just wanted to be semi-flexible. And I guess that's kind of what they are. You you make some good points about the attractiveness of the Spurs to a guy like LeBron James. I just, I still, I He's can't. not a system guy like that. Yeah, I know. It would be, it was no. that, it was like that, tri- well, I, it's, you know how the Warriors said, like, it was so much, it would be so much easier for them to incorporate Kevin Durant than it would have been LeBron last year. Right. Uh, that's not even my objection. I just can't, oh, okay. I can't get past the thought of LeBron going west. It, It'd be just, idiotic, yeah. It would be. I mean, who's who's the top threat in the East right now? Like Celtics and Wizards. Like he's steamrolled through them. <laughs> They've steamrolled those guys. I'm still not sold that the Celtics got better with the Kyrie Irving trade. Like that that one. Oh still... my God! Finally, finally, uh, someone they lost no. value this summer. Like just look yeah. at everyone they lost. They did. They lo- they lost. They lost an identity more than anything else. And, and again, that it might be the coach in me talking a little bit too much, but that, that's going to be really strange. And you know who the the I think it's either third or fourth. I'm going to double double check this one before I I really go out there and and float it around. Yeah, you know who the fourth longest tenured Boston Celtic is. The fourth longest has got to be Al Horford. Okay, so we have. Like Terry Rozier is the second longest tenured Celtic right now. Yeah, yeah, it's Al Horford. Al Horford is. We have Marcus Smart, Terry Rozier, Jalen Brown, and Al Horford. Do you know who's fifth? I, is it Gordon Hayward at this point? Because <laughs> he signed before Jason, Kyrie was traded. Jason Tatum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jason Tatum has not played in a game in the NBA, and he's the fifth longest tenured player on a team that we're expecting to dethrone LeBron James. Is that? I like they turned over almost two thirds of their roster and they got rid of three starters. Like I, that is like a total disregard for continuity. And maybe this is the Spurs' play for continuity. Like the Celtics are planning for the future. It seems more than the Spurs are at this point. Like they kept their, most of their starting lineup. Like they're, you know, they're, their core is intact. Like they kept yeah. everything intact and they're trying to kind of just add and tweak and push and pull where they can. Yeah, and and you, t- I mean, you take a look at the the Celtics. Their their cap sheet is almost orgasmic at this point. It's so <laughs> meticulous and clean, and there's a path to keeping all these guys for a long term. And the Spurs don't necessarily have that, but what they do have is continuity and identity, and hopefully that all of these small tweaks that they're making with going a little bit smaller and and trying to to change things a little bit to match better to Golden State, don't compromise that because that really is and always has been the biggest value of the San Antonio Spurs. I'm going to try and put you on the spot here with a couple rapid-fire questions. Let's do it. Who is going to end up being more impactful next year on the Spurs, Murray, Bertans, or Kyle Anderson? This season, I should say, wow, I'm talking like it's still June. (laughs) Uh, Murray. I think definitely Murray. You, I, I, he's, he's good. Do you he's, think? Do you think like this is going to be a year where we start to? I mean, he's a sophomore, but do you think we're just going to look at him and be like, "Wow, he's putting it together already"? I think he's probably like a a nine five and three type of guy, which is pretty good. You know, that's those are those are good numbers, uh, and. I think a lot of it will be kind of the basketball Twitter falls in love with him, but nobody thinks of him as like this top of the line type of guy. Like he's, I think probably similar, similar to what Marcus smart was in his second year in the league. Like the expectations are guy are high. People know about him, but kind of the biggest impact that he makes is on defense, but he's quietly like solid on offense and a better shooter than Marcus smart. I hope (laughs) Yeah, we well, that's hard to hard to not be. <laughs> he does shoot them. I got to give Marcus more credit for that. He he lets them fly. Um, wow, I lost my train of thought because we went into a Marcus Marcus Smart tangent. Um, so where do you kind of see the Spurs ultimately ending up in the West, or what? What do you think their ceiling is in the West Conference? Let's go there first. If the, if mostly everything breaks right for them. Okay. Well, I. Am a firm believer in, and this is going to sound like the weirdest answer to your question, but I'm a firm believer that you don't tank. Okay. Ever. 
And the reason for that is because you never know. Every team is kind of one injury away from sliding up the totem pole, right? Mm -hmm. So Golden State, they're fantastic, and they're probably built to endure one injury. Like they were fine without Durant for a long stretch last year. But you never know if there's two guys or, you know, knock on wood, something happens and a couple of guys are out for the year and can't come back. Everybody else slots up one spot or at least the, the gap narrows. For the Spurs, the, the best case scenario for them without putting health into, into the equation is probably the two seed. They do what they do, ho-hum through the regular season, just win games, play, push the right buttons – get through that, and then lose in the Western Conference Finals. I think without injury, that's probably their, their best-case scenario. Um, but, you again, you're one or two injuries away, and hell, if Kawhi Leonard didn't get hurt last season, we might have had a, a really compelling Western Conference Finals. Oh, that's so, so annoying. I know, I know. It, oh, that's going to be like 10 years from now. That's going to be one of the bigger what-ifs that we're talking about, I think. What, what what would happen if if Kawhi Leonard were were really healthy? Because you know, I I just I don't know that that's that'll that'll always stick with me. But and, to me, that's that's their their best case scenario is kind of two seed in the West, fifty five to sixty wins in that range, and Western Conference Finals. What would you see their worst case scenario as being? Worst case scenario is this injury on Kawhi nags and really weighs them down. Um, they win 48 games, are the four seed, and uh, have a tough time in the first round with either Denver or Minnesota, kind of defending the, the uniqueness, barely scraped by, and then just get clobbered by the Warriors. Um, and so do you think, and that this was like kind of supposed to tie into that rapid fire part that just went off the rails because my train of yeah. thought just evaporated. Uh, where are they going to rank in in terms of points allowed per 100 possessions? Like, let's just keep it basic. Are they going to – I don't – I like, can they have the league best defense again as they did um, last year and as they always seem to have? I, I want to say yes because I would have in no way looked at their roster from last year and thought that they would have the league top defense, yet they did. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's definitely possible that they can. Um. I mean, I'm trying off the top of my head to think of, of five teams that are better. I mean, I, I think the Warriors are. Uh, I'm a big fan in, in the Jazz defense with, with Gobert. In the middle there. I mean, I think they're they're fantastic with that. Um, beyond that, I don't, not too many teams are, are jumping out at me as, you know, absolutely elite. So, yeah, uh, for sure. Top three then again. So that's – and if that's yeah. – if that's yeah. the trade-off you make, there might be an argument. If we're going to assume Kawhi Leonard's healthy, and that was going to be my my other question was who's going to average more? But we'll, I'll tie it into that. If Kawhi Leonard's healthy, like we're probably looking at a team that can be top three offense now. And if the trade-off to jump up, maybe not, or top five, but if you can, you know, if you're still going to be a top three defense and you can leap a couple spots on offense, you're maybe better suited um, to hit some more threes or space the floor or open up lanes for your point guards. Uh, maybe that's like that's just the thought process here. Is the Spurs know they're going to churn out a top three defense no matter what? Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, again, Greg Popovich is so much smarter than I am. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a I'm a Division three assistant coach. I uh, I don't have much on Greg Popovich, so I'm going to trust his judgment and that the buttons that they've they've pressed are are going to be the right ones because. I don't know. I've been watching the NBA for pretty much ever since he took over. I was, I think, three or four years old when he got the head coaching job there. And I've been watching the NBA ever since he's been there. I've never seen the Spurs suck. So why, <laughs> why, why would I bet against them now, you know? Um, and this is the question I wanted to tie into that that I meant to ask earlier. Who – the entire – what I thought was going to happen this year, and let's just assume Kawhi's healthy and comes back soon, was that he was going to make just another leap as a playmaker. We saw it. Like in the playoffs, he just carried that offense, and he averaged four point six assists per game. And I could see him stepping above that. Who averages, assuming Kawhi Leonard is healthy, who averages more assists this year, Kevin Durant or Kawhi Leonard? 
with Kawhi Leonard. Uh, I'm going to say Kawhi. That's, so that's a tough one. I'm glad you found that tough because I found it interesting. I wanted to know if I was the only one. Yeah, I think the reason I'll go with Kawhi is because I think there are more playmakers that will rack up assists in Golden State than there are in San Antonio. Um, you know, I think Steph, Draymond, Iguodala all take away more assists that are available than any of the guys in supporting cast in San Antonio. And if, um, before I get to where you, your gut feeling on where you just think what how the season's going to end up for them win-wise and place in the Western Conference, if, Greg, if they win, let's say, another 55 games, if they're the, the third or second seed in the West again with this team, I think that looks less talented than last year's team did on paper and is definitely if you look at the teams of the past five to six years they're you know they don't look among the best talented is greg popovich just a shoe in for the coach of the year award because i think a lot of people grappled with it last year and even when i was making hypothetical picks i struggled with it because i wanted to give it to him not because pop is well yes because pop is so good but not because this is the greg popovich award but like look at what he did with a team that did not look like it was built to win 61 games there's always a case to be made for Popovich for coach of the year. Fair and, enough. And, and we, like, we see it year in and year out. He is the best coach in the NBA. He should win coach of the year every season. But if, you never know what more kind of remarkable jump up in the standings based on preseason predictions is going to take place. Like it, I would have had a really tough time not voting for Eric Spolstra last year because of what he did to turn around. the. Like They finished the season 500. They won 70%, 75% of their games in the second half of the season in order to do so. Like they, If you win 70% of your games and you still miss the playoffs after that long of a stretch of time, like you've got to go back to the start of that and be like, what is it that you're playing for? What motivation do you have to keep winning like that? Like it's That is an unbelievable coaching job to me. So – Without getting off on on a tangent and talking about just my man crush for like fifteen of the thirty coaches in the NBA, <laughs> like Popovich, it, it's easy to say he's a shoe in, but there are a lot of good coaches out there in this league that will, I think, defy expectations in a way where right now the Spurs don't because we just kind of say, well, they're the Spurs and it's what they do. And gut check time. What do you see win totals for this team? Let's try and put it down to like a two or three win window and their ultimate place in the Western Conference. All right. I'm going to go with three seed behind Golden State and Houston. Ooh. At 50. How do I want to do this here? I'm going to say 57 wins. Wow! If this team, I'm sorry, if this team gets 57 wins, Greg Popovich, coach of the year, like he has to be. I'm sorry, just look at the roster. Like you have to be coach of the year in that situation. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's going to be hard to to vote against that, but yeah, 57 wins, and just because I just have a really hard time with the Houston Rockets right now, I'm saying the Spurs go to Western Conference Finals. Woof. Is it, it's, it's weird. I don't have anything to add to that because I just agree. I, I yeah. think they're going to be 55-plus again. I'm not sure how the playoffs are going to shake out. The Thunder are more intimidating to me than the Rockets, but everything you just said, like, I'm, I'm just I'm, – I don't know if this is blind faith or if I think that the small ball lineups are going to – they're going to play more and they're just going to work because the Spurs are going to – they're just going to do what they do, but I just see 55-plus for them. And I, it would not shock me if they're number two in the West. It would not shock me if they made it to the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, and remember how I started this pod, Dan. I said I was pessimistic about their summer. So. <laughs> and this is what you're predicting. Man, Spurs fans have it good. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, I want to thank Adam for jumping on. It's it's always a pleasure. This was a blast that we were able to do this again before you get crazy with your in-game coaching schedule and recruiting and grad school and, and before the season gets underway. So this was uh, this was great. Thank you for giving us so much of your time. If our listeners would like to get at Adam Spinella for being too low on the Spurs, I mean, 57 wins is less than 70. So if you want to get Adam and call him out for <laughs> being so low on them, he you can follow him at Spinella14. That's 
at S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A-14. He, again, is a Washington and Jefferson assistant men's basketball coach. He writes for us over at NBA Math. He is You can find him at P-Ball Breakdown and Fast Model. He is everywhere. If you want to talk to me, you can find me at Dan Favalli. That's F-A-V-A-L-E. If you want to talk to my esteemed co-host, Andy Bailey, he's at Andrew D. Bailey, spelled exactly like it sounds. Please follow the NBA Math official account at NBA underscore math. You can follow Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox. Since Andy is here, there will be no shout out to you know who. So until next time. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.